The Common Good Forum presents the responsibility to protect national security challenges. A presentation by former Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, with an introduction by Maurice Sonnenberg. It's my pleasure to introduce the former Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff. Michael's had a distinguished career. He's been the former U.S. Attorney of New Jersey, former Assistant Attorney General uh, of the government at the time of 9-11. He was on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals as a federal judge. And rather than take time from him, I can only tell you one other thing. He has a firm called the Chertoff Group, and they're an advisory firm in the area of security, obviously, investment. He also has an investment bank, and one key part of the firm is cybersecurity. So without further ado, I present you the former Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff. Um, I wish I could tell you this is going to be a lighthearted speech, but I've been asked to talk a little bit about what um, people who are involved in in the national security field are concerned about and are worrying about. What I used to be asked was, what keeps you up at night? Actually, what usually kept me up at night was ambient noise outside. I didn't particularly worry about the state of the world. But I think metaphorically, I understand that people want to know what are the threats that we face uh, that are of, of greatest interest and greatest focus on the part of people involved in the security profession. I have to say the landscape of the world has changed in many ways enormously over the last uh, two decades, and the nature of the threats we face are, in my view, frankly, as acute now as they have been at any time in my lifetime, and I'm 61 years old, so you can guess what a long period of time that's been. And that's because of the confluence of two trends which operate independently, but taken together create a real potential for disorder and uncertainty from a national security standpoint. The first is globalization and the rise of technology, which has created uh, a a capability on the part of non-state actors, terrorist groups, terrorist networks, uh, even small groups of, of individuals or lone wolves. It has given them an ability to operate on a global uh, basis, to carry out attacks, to be disturbing influences to a much greater extent than would have been the case 10 or 20 years ago. In many ways, we now look at the security threats posed by these networks as being every bit as serious as those traditionally posed by nation states. September 11, 2001, obviously, is the classic example of that. The greatest, most damaging attack against civilians in the United States since the War of 1812, and carried out not by another state, uh, like the former Soviet Union or Germany, who we fought in World War II, but carried out by an amorphous group of terrorists networked together, who uh, trained in one country, were financed from the, from, uh, the Middle East, who actually did the planning in Afghanistan and then carried out the attacks in the United States. But at the same time, one of the things I'm going to talk about is the rise, again, of threats that we thought had evaporated at the end of the Cold War. You remember when the wall came down, the Soviet Union uh, dissolved, 
And someone wrote a book famously called The End of History. It was going to be the triumph of the Western liberal democratic model with the fall of the great competitive behemoth, the Soviet Union. Who would have thought that in 2015 we'd be concerned about the threat that Russia poses to NATO and we'd see a Russian invasion not only of parts of Georgia, which occurred back in 2008, but of the Ukraine, including the occupation of the Crimea. So we are now once again having to look at NATO not just as a, an allied group that sends expeditionary forces out to Afghanistan or other parts of the world, but actually as a group that might be called upon to defend the territory of Europe. So this is the development of, a, of another trend or the resurgence of another trend of nation states now becoming once again potential threats in terms of, of warfare. So let me take you on a survey of this landscape, and then let me talk a little bit about what I think is perhaps the threat that touches each of us individually more than any other, and that is the threat of cyber attacks or even cyber warfare, uh, using our networks that are connected, which we rely upon for our business, for our personal life, having these turned against us and being used as vectors for criminality, theft of intellectual property, and even the possibility of carrying out physical consequences in the destruction of property or the loss of life. <clears throat> so let's talk about terrorism. In September 2001, um, those who were not following developments in the world of counterterrorism uh, were very rudely and tragically awakened to al-Qaeda. And much of the focus of our efforts over the years since then, the over decade since 2001, has been to degrade and ultimately eliminate al-Qaeda as a threat. Um, I would say we were successful in eliminating or substantially degrading al-Qaeda 1.0. That was the original generation of leaders. Uh, bin Laden, dead, many of the other leaders apprehended and in Guantanamo or elsewhere, uh, some killed, uh, others incapacitated. But that did not eliminate al-Qaeda. It simply ushered in another generation of al-Qaeda. And when you look at what al-Qaeda stood for, you realize in the end it wasn't just the organization but the movement. They were the vanguard of a uh, movement of violent jihadism, uh, which has now not only been a source of recruiting for al-Qaeda itself, but has given rise to ISIS, which is the so-called Islamic State in Syria and the Levant, uh, called by people in the region Daesh. Um, and this is a group that purports to be the inheritors and the next um, progenitors of the caliphate, going back to the days of the Ottoman Empire. <clears throat> we now see these groups and others, like Boko Haram in Nigeria, what used to be al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, in Yemen, uh, what was uh, were fragmentary groups in North Africa. We've now seen these coalesce, and we've seen perhaps even more concerning the ability that these groups have now to recruit in the West. Because after 9-11, we set up a uh, quite robust and successful system to keep uh, people from parts of the world which are generating a lot of terrorism out of the United States. Um, we have many intelligence tools and other tools that we use to make sure we screen visitors or people who want to come in and make it difficult to import operatives into the U.S. What the terrorists did as a consequence of seeing the rise of that capability 
was to begin to try to recruit Westerners in place, either recruit them, have them leave and train and then go back, or if they can't leave the United States and get to Afghanistan or Yemen or Somalia, and, and a number did, to actually train them over the Internet and recruit them. And that phenomenon is one that we've seen over the last several years, most recently with the attack in Garfield, Texas. What's challenging about this, uh, what I would call terrorism 2.0 or even 3.0, is that while these people are not capable of carrying out very substantial big attacks on the scale of 9-11, at least not at this point, um, they're very low signature, meaning that they don't do a lot of moving around, they don't have a very extended network, Therefore, our intelligence capabilities, which are largely built around the ability to focus on travel, the flow of money, and communications, those techniques do not work all that well with these very small cells or even lone wolf individuals who are recruited over the Internet. So that the possibility of large-scale attacks is relatively low in the foreseeable future, the possible possibility of multiple attacks, even multiple attacks at the same time, has actually increased rather dramatically. So where do we go from here with respect to terrorism? <clears throat> well, al-Qaeda itself still has as a policy and as an objective the infliction of serious harm and damage against Westerners, particularly Americans, whether it's in other parts of the world or in the United States itself. And we can expect they will continue to try to recruit people um, from around the world that subscribe to their ideology and will carry out attacks. But ISIS is a little different. ISIS is not merely looking to develop platforms for attacking the West, although they're, they're certainly not reluctant to do so. But what they actually want to do is constitute a nation state. And if you look at what's going on now in Iraq and Syria, you actually have um, a territory, a significant amount of territory that is under the control of ISIS. They have set up a, a, an infrastructure. They've got some kind of economic activity. They do a certain amount of so social welfare. For those of you who follow terrorist groups, this is reminiscent of Hezbollah, which actually has morphed from a kind of a terrorist group into a terrorist group that actually controls territory, that provides social services and education, and really looks to constitute itself almost as a state within a state. If you read the newspapers, you know that uh, as we speak, a number of leaders from the Arab Gulf states are now in Washington. I think they're actually at Camp David today with President Obama talking about what they need to do to deal with twin threats, the threat of Iran and its clients, whether it be Hezbollah or the Assad regime in Syria and the threat of the rise of extreme Sunni jihadism, which you see with um, al-Qaeda in Yemen, uh, and which you see in parts of North Africa, particularly Libya, and of course, which you continue to see in Afghanistan and even possibly in Pakistan. This is what we call in the trade a no-win situation, meaning it's not a set of good guys and a set of bad guys, it's a set of bad guys and a set of bad guys. And there's an old expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, not true. Sometimes the enemy of my enemy is my enemy. So in the Middle East now, we've gotten to the point that um, our friends look and they see Sunni extremism and Iran uh, clientism as twin threats to the stability of the region. 
Um, I know that um, the approach that we have taken thus far, and I'm happy to answer questions about it, has been to be somewhat remote and operate uh, using drones or aircraft and not put so-called boots on the ground. It strikes me as unlikely that we're going to be able to maintain that posture if we're to make a serious effort to degrade and ultimately incapacitate um, ISIS or Daesh and similar groups. And likewise, it seems to me we're going to have to be more involved unless we want to cede the region to Iran uh, as part of its, its client region. So I think that's going to be maybe the most urgent challenge we have ahead of ourselves. But I want to talk about two others before I throw it open to questions. I've talked about Iran in the context of the region in general. But obviously, we all know there are currently discussions about the Iranian nuclear development program and what they need to do for us to raise sanctions. There is an agreement framework. Depending on who you talk to, that agreement means different things. It seems to mean one thing to the American negotiators and one thing to the <clears throat> negotiators from Iran. I'm far from convinced you're actually going to get an agreement. <clears throat> what is clear from the framework is that the United States has moved from we absolutely want to uh, eliminate their ability to enrich uranium and we want to remove what they've already enriched to a framework that would allow approximately half or maybe 40 percent of the centrifuges to continue to operate that would allow a research and development program into nuclear activity to continue to operate. And then depending on which interpretation you, you take would pretty quickly begin to, to lift economic sanctions, which would then, of course, allow Iran to rebuild its economy. Um, I understand that there's no easy answer, no magic bullet to eliminating the nuclear program. Um, and as time has passed, and one of the great lessons in the, in the region is time is not your friend. While you're thinking about what to do, things are getting worse. And so options that may have been available two or three years ago may not be available now. But as we look at this potential uh, program, we need to bear a couple things in mind. The end of the game for the Iranians here is domination of the region. And you see them pursuing that by supporting uh, the Houthi in Yemen. You see it through the supporting of, of Assad. And the nuclear program is part of that. I personally actually think the risk with a nuclear program is not so much an attack on Israel, because I think the Iranians know, as I think all of us strongly suspect, that the Israelis have the ability, if there were an attack, to obliterate Iran. And I don't think the Iranian leadership is suicidal. But I do think they view nuclear weapons, as the North Koreans do in North Korea, as a way of exerting domination and control over the region, particularly with non-nuclear countries, which is why you're now beginning to hear more discussion about the possibility of the Gulf states acquiring a nuclear capability. So what do you want to watch for in this agreement? To me, the most important thing is who decides when the agreement is breached. The more complicated the text of the agreement, um, the harder it's going to be to determine whether the Iranians have violated it or not. And if the decision is ultimately in the hands of the Security Council, for example, where the Russians have a veto, I say good luck to that. You could easily have a situation where the Iranians begin to cheat right away and the Security Council debates for several years whether they violated the treaty, and in the meantime, the sanctions have been suspended, and they're building up while they're making progress to a nuclear weapon. 
Great example of that was in the news today, Syria. We had this, quote, agreement to back away from the red line on chemical weapons. They've now found traces of sarin and ricin in Syria that they think come from Assad, as well as the chlorine gas bombs. So who decides and what the standard of deciding on a breach is, to my mind, the critical question ahead in Iran. Finally, let me talk a little bit about Russia. I spent a fair amount of time in the last year um, attending various conferences and meeting with senior officials in uh, Eastern Europe. And they are very concerned about Putin. Uh, They've seen an aggressive Russia, the likes of which probably has not been the case since the early years of the Cold War. What is Putin's game plan? Some of it obviously is he has a failing economy and is looking to distract attention and to make himself popular by reigniting Russian nationalism. And he's been quite successful, actually. He is uh, quite popular, and he is getting a resurgence not only of nationalism, but anti-Americanism. What is his strategy? In my view, and I think it's shared by a number of other people, his, his ultimate goal is to break NATO. That is to say, to expose NATO as not being worth the paper the treaty is written on, and to degrade the position of the United States in Europe. How's he doing this? Three areas. First, what they used to call information operations, investing in various kinds of propaganda, uh, media much more sophisticated than in the old days, um, and even investing in political parties, right-wing political parties in Europe, in order to generate public opinion that is hostile to the United States. If you poll in places like Germany now, you will see that views of Putin are about as favorable as views of the United States. Think about that. Second thing he's doing is a lot of bluster and a lot of um, pushing forward on the issue of uh, protecting Russians in countries in Eastern Europe. That was his rationale for the Ukraine. Now you begin to hear Russians talking about the Baltics as a place where there are Russians who are being oppressed and it might be necessary to come to their aid. Unlike the Ukraine, um, Baltics are in fact part of NATO. And if um, uh, Putin were to begin to do what he's done in the Ukraine, what they call hybrid warfare, where you send in people without uniforms to foment trouble, we would be faced with the question of whether NATO would come in to assist the Baltic countries. If we did, you could easily get a very dangerous situation. If we didn't, you would have Putin saying, you see, when when something happens, NATO's not there for you. So I think these are, are, are all areas where we've got security challenges to be faced. There are many more I could talk about, but I want to leave some time for questions. We've got time for a few questions. Make the question short. Well, I guess I would say this. First of all, I'm not sure I agree with your characterization that the problem is over in Europe. They've got a much bigger problem now than they had back in the 70s and 80s. You know, in the 70s and 80s, you had the Red Army faction. You had indigenous groups. There was nothing to do with colonialism. You had left-wing groups that were carrying out terrorist acts. Right now, I would say there is a greater threat in Europe from immigrant uh, groups, foreign fighters, 
uh, that have not been assimilated and have not been integrated into society, probably greater than it's been in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and to me, that's what, what you've seen in Charlie Hebdo. Um, there, there are literally, I've heard, thousands and thousands of foreign fighters in Europe now, many of whom have gone to fight in Syria and Iraq and are coming back, and some of whom will carry out attacks. We've not had that problem as severely by any means. Um, we did have a, a period of time when Somali Americans went to Somalia to fight with al-Shabaab, and some of them came back and, and were looking to carry out attacks. But the bigger problem for us has been people who are actually you know, born in the United States, but have become radicalized over the internet. And by the way, these are not necessarily people who are, um, whose families came over as immigrants. If I took you through a list of the cases that we made against people in the U.S. who were conspiring to carry out attacks for al-Qaeda. Many of them were born Catholic. There was a jihad Jane in Pennsylvania, blonde hair, blue eyes. These people actually, in a sense, became, quote, Muslim because they wanted a rationale for carrying out terrorist attacks, uh, because they were inspired by the ideology of violence that you see underpinning al-Qaeda and you see underpinning ISIS. My question's on Yeah. So the question is about the impact of the cloud on security, particularly government security. And one thing, let's be, I want to be clear about, um, the cloud, you know, which is a way of storing data, is not actually a cloud. It is physical infrastructure that exists somewhere in the world. And it's simply a way of processing among data centers in order to get the maximum compute power. Um, there is not a single cloud. A cloud is a technique for managing data and data processing. And the government, in many cases, on the most sensitive programs, does not participate in the Amazon cloud or the cloud that your, your firm is participating in. Um, so you do have private clouds or clouds that are, are semi-private for mo the most sensitive systems. More generally, even for people who are not in the government, um, the cloud can be a very good tool for security. It can be a very big risk for security. It's a good tool if you have a properly configured cloud with encryption of the data at rest as well as in motion so that your information is protected even though it may be hosted in a piece of infrastructure that is shared by other people. But it's also a risk if the people who are hosting the cloud are not doing a good job because then what happens is you brought all the eggs together in a single basket and if one of the eggs gets rotten, all the other eggs wind up having a problem as well. Um, that, this is a really fast overview of a very complicated topic, which I didn't have time to dive deeply into. But uh, the short answer is this is, is probably the biggest security challenge we currently face in the private sector as well as in the public sector, simply because, as the, as the questioner pointed out, um, when the Internet was formed, it was not formed on the basis of trust and security. And we have run afterwards to try to embed security into that system, which is inherently not a trust network. And so we're working to, to try to deal with that issue. Okay. Let's give the secretary a round of applause and thank him for taking such time. For more information about the common good, please visit our website at www.thecommongoodusa.org.